I'll, I won't repeat that, but I'm glad to be here with you today. Um, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. Now, you know, I have said to folks during this particular uh, pandemic that it is nice to be at the top of a list, in most cases, uh, in academics, in uh, athletics, or in some other kinds of endeavor. It's always great to be at the top of the list. But when you are at the top of the at-risk list, then you don't especially uh, relish that particular part. And uh, I fall into the category of being at the top from, from a variety of cases. One is, I'm over the age of 60, and I know most of you wouldn't realize that and recognize that, but uh, I, I am. Uh, I have diabetes. I've had uh, heart issues, heart uh, disease issues. Uh, a couple of stents put in and the like. I've had uh, prostate cancer. Um, I, I'm pretty good for a guy as sick as I am. I, I'm doing all right uh, uh, there. Um, passed my first kidney stone last week, so, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm there. And so as a result of that, I have um, been overly cautious and rather err on the side of uh, of being too careful than not. And so I wear the mask whenever I'm out. Um, Catherine and I have, are very careful about going out. One of the last things I want to do, of course, is get that uh, um, virus and, and it uh, affect me. But probably more important than that is I don't want to get it and take it home to Catherine. And, uh, and so um, I, I do that. So you will hopefully understand when after the service is over I don't go shake hands and I put the mask on and all that kind of good stuff, all right? This, this pandemic has caused us, um, at least has caused me and hopefully has caused you to, to stop and take note of just what, uh, what the Lord's trying to tell us in all of this. And I do believe that God is trying to get our attention and uh, send us to our room and cause us to, to think um, more carefully about what uh, the world is, is all about and what he intends for us. Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 16 says this is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths or old paths if you will. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. During this uh, pandemic period, I have uh, been spending a lot of time reading uh, the scripture, and I want to recommend a source for you if you don't already have it and, and don't already use it, and that is the New Living Translation of the One-Year Chronological Study, or One-Year Chronological Bible. The New Living Translation is the one I, I prefer, not the NIV, but the NLT. And in the process of reading, I, 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 of course it starts out at the Old Testament, it's a chronological uh, uh, study, and 
and it uh, takes you through. And, and one of the things that I have seen time and time and time again are the number of occasions when God reached out to the children of Israel, reached out to other nations, offered his love, his, his encouragement, and yet uh, they turned their backs on God. And uh, I don't think I'm being radical whenever I say that uh, the world has turned its back on God. And uh, if nothing else, I, I think maybe God's trying to get our attention and cause us to realize just that we've done that. What do you imagine the Apostle Paul or Simon Peter would think if they were co to come to America and visit some of our larger churches today? Even this church, in terms of its building, would be an astonishment to them. And remember, they, they preached and taught in homes and on hillsides, and so this would be something of amazement to them. But certainly these churches that uh, house two and three and four and five thousand people uh, would be astonishing. What much of what they would hear would be amazing to them. Talk about Sunday school and, and on normal circumstances without the pandemic being in place. They would hear talk about uh, mission efforts and uh, women's organizations and choirs and things of that nature in many of these churches. So it would for them be like and maybe literally living in a different world. But how do you think they would compare the religion of today to the old time religion? To the religion they uh, were a part of? during their day. In more recent years, it seems as though we have replaced the religion of the past, the old-time religion, with the emotions of a feel-good theology. You and I often go through the motions of religion without knowing what we're doing. If, if you were asked to define your faith, your religion today, what would you offer? What can you say, say is the substance of your faith? What are the core components of your religion? If you got on the elevator and by the time you got off 10 stories or 10 floors up or 20 floors up and were to be given the assignment of giving the people in that elevator the, the essence of or the core of your faith, what, what would you be able to say? That's what I want us to talk about this morning. I suggest to you that the core of your faith and your religion needs to be more than, I love Jesus. That's well and good, and I hope you do. But our faith, our religion needs to be grounded in more than an emotion. So I ask you this morning, how does your religion compare to the old-time religion? Well, it might help to ask and answer the question, well, what do you mean by the old-time religion? But in order for us to compare it, uh, what was the essence of the old-time religion? 
Well, I suggest to you this morning that the old-time religion is the changeless truth in the midst of constant change. It is the religion of the book, the blood, and the blessed hope. So those are the components that we're going to look at this morning. First of all, the component of our, component of our religion should be the book. The book of our faith is the Bible. And the Bible is God's word. It is the book from heaven. Missionary Julius Hickerson was flying in a small plane over the jungles of Columbia, South America in 1950 when suddenly his plane exploded and Hickerson fell to his death. Two years later, natives from an unmissionized region of those jungles showed up at a mission station, a, a place where missionaries were, were uh, housing their ministry. The natives were professing Christians. Now the missionaries were mystified for they knew that no missionary had ever been into the region and whence, from whence these natives came. And in the process of inquiring as to how they came to know Jesus, they presented a much-used copy of, of the Bible. With further investigation, the missionaries discovered that it had the name Julius Hickerson in it. For those natives, that book was literally a book from heaven for them. And I suggest to you this morning that it's no less a book from heaven for us today. The Bible is God's inspired word. The truth in the book did not originate in the inquisitive and investigative mind of man. It's God's truth sent by the Holy Spirit from the throne room on high. The Apostle Paul commended the Thessalonian believers for them recognizing the origin of the word they heard. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Because the Bible is the Word of God, it is incomparable. Just as a tiny little hut cannot be compared to the Empire State Building or the Sears Tower, just as a muddy little pond cannot be compared to the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean, just as a tiny firecracker cannot be compared to the atomic bomb, so no other book can be compared to the Bible. When Sir Walter Scott lay dying, he said to a young kinsman by his bedside, bring me the book. The young man, aware that Sir Walter Scott's library contained hundreds of volumes, said to him, which book, sir? To which Scott replied, there is but one book, the Bible. Because the Bible is the Word of God, its truth is revealing. The Bible tells us things that we would never know without the book. 
The Bible tells us about God, who He is and what He's doing and what His purposes are. And even though, according to the psalmist, the heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims His handiwork, we would not know who He is and know what we do about His great love apart from the book. The Bible reveals the truth about mankind. Man in his scientific search looked first to the heavens and then to the earth beneath his feet before he ever came to look inside himself. The Bible begins with man. The Word of God shows us what and who we are and tells us what we need to be doing with our life. The Bible reveals the truth not only about God and about mankind, but it reveals the truth about life. Shakespeare's Macbeth came to conclude that life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Well, the Bible shows us what life is all about. That is not some cruel joke played upon mankind. The Word of God reveals that life finds meaning and direction and purpose in and through Jesus Christ. The Bible reveals truth about eternity. Mankind witnesses the daily victory of death. We're keenly aware of the fact that death is a reality, but what then? What comes after death? Well, science, which must deal with Measurable and observable facts, evidence, can only declare that the body returns to dust. Philosophy, dealing with ideas and theories, can only speculate and guess as to what lies beyond death. It's God's Word that pulls back the veil and permits us to know what we do about eternity. The Bible is revealing. Because the Bible is the Word of God, its truth is relevant. Some books are dated. The theme and thesis of those books soon become outdated and irrelevant. Susan, what doctor would treat a patient with cancer using as his manual a book written a hundred years ago would not. What druggist would dispense prescriptions using as their manual a, a book written 50 years ago? What historian or instructor would teach geography using a textbook published before World War II? Even though some books are dated, the Bible is not dateless or the Bible, rather, is dateless. It speaks with equal accuracy and authority to every new day, even though its last page was penned nearly 2,000 years ago. The Word of God is always relevant. Because the Bible is the Word of God, it is reliable. Some books widely circulated and recommended today offer advice which if followed would lead to a shipwrecked life. Not so the Bible. It is a chart 
that has never failed the traveler. It is a compass that has never given an incorrect bearing. It is a guide that has never misled a person. This book from heaven that is revealing, relevant, and reliable must be a part of our faith and our religion if it's to stand the test of time. But notice, secondly, the blood, and I'll be briefer with these. The Bible, in the Bible, blood stands as a symbol of life. Jesus said that blood represents life. Blood as a symbol of life, as recorded in Matthew chapter 27, is seen in the fact that the shedding of blood meant the taking of life. The shedding of blood was the reason that Christ came into this world. You know, one can identify a number of reasons for the incarnation of Christ. But chief and primary among them all was that Christ might, have, uh, might uh, become our sin sacrifice, who in the shedding of his innocent blood would purchase salvation for mankind. During the Civil War, a man by the name of George Wyatt received a visit from an officer of the Confederate Army. And Wyatt was told that he would be enlisted and would have to report the following day to the Confederate headquarters nearby. Wyatt had a family. He had a wife and children, obligations, and he didn't want to go, but he had no other choice. When the officer left, he said that there would be someone to come and escort Wyatt to the headquarters the following morning. Well, shortly after that visit, uh, a friend of Wyatt's, a man by the name of Pratt, showed up. And in the course of their visit, Wyatt told his friend Pratt of, of the visit and his enlistment. And he didn't want to go. Pratt suggested that he go in Wyatt's place. And, Pratt, and Wyatt said, no, I would never hear of that. Pratt spent the night there in their home. The following morning, a knock came at the door, and Pratt answered the door. And the, the soldier asked, are you George Wyatt? And Pratt said, yes, I am. Long story short, Pratt went and enlisted under the name of George Wyatt that day. Wyatt heard of this and was disturbed by it all, but there was nothing he could do at that time, and Pratt died in the course of the, the war. They came again to Wyatt's home and wanted to enlist him. And Wyatt argued this time, refusing saying, no, George Wyatt, according to the record, George Wyatt has, has fought and died in battle. Well, they took him to court. And according to the records, Wyatt proved that George Wyatt had indeed served and died. Someone had taken George Wyatt's place. Someone had died so that he would not have to. And I suggest to you this morning, my friends, that someone has died for you and me as well. He died so that you and I would not have to taste eternal death. And that someone is Jesus. 
Peter recognized this truth, and he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, You know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The blood of Jesus Christ alone is adequate to cleanse mankind's sin. I ask you this morning, is the blood of Christ a vital part of your faith? I hope it is. Well, third and finally, the blessed hope. And what is that blessed hope? Jesus is coming again. That is our blessed hope. During all of this pandemic uh, stuff that's going on, I've seen numerous articles, and you I'm sure have too, about end times. had a friend call me the other day and uh, talked for a while about the red heifers in, re- in relation to the end times. If you've not read up on it, and some have, then uh, read up on that. Uh, there, there have been several articles about the red heifer and uh, the sacrifice of the red heifer, which allows for the rebuilding of the temple as part of one of the prophecies and so forth. Anyway, that. And then a time, just one thing after the other. I, I personally believe we're living in the end times, and, and I guess that's easy to say because it is now closer than it has ever been. But I do believe it's around the corner. Well, the the fact that Jesus is coming again is repeatedly talked about in the Scripture. Listen to what the Scripture says. The night before the crucifixion, Jesus himself said to his disciples in the upper upper room, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus says, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. The angels proclaim that Jesus is coming again. According to, to, uh, rather, after Jesus gave his disciples the Great Commission, he began to ascend into heaven, and the Bible says, and while they were gazing into heaven, while the disciples were standing there gazing into heaven, watching Jesus ascend, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And the first word that God sent to mankind on earth after ascending back into heaven was that the Lord was going to return. Jesus, my friends, is coming again. That is our blessed hope, we who are believers. You know, the Bible does not give a a full detail account of how that's going to take place. I wish it did, but there are reasons for it not. However, we can glean some facts about this momentous event of the future as we study the scripture. 
Dr. Adrian Rogers, now deceased, former pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, some of you may be familiar with Dr. Rogers. Had a lot to say about the second coming of Christ, and I want to share with you some of the thoughts that he, he said about it. He said, first of all, his second coming will be visible. John in exile on the island of Patmos declared in Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Just as the disciples saw Jesus visibly go into heaven, the angel said, Jesus will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. His second coming will be visible. Secondly, his second coming will be victorious. Speaking of that great event, Jesus said, They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Paul wrote, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the, the sound of the trumpet of God. John, there in the book of Revelation, writes that he comes back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But notice how differently our Lord's second coming will be from that of his first. He came the first time to be a victim. He comes the second time as the victor. He came the first time to walk among men, but he comes the second time to reign over men. He came the first time to be judged by man. He comes the second time as the judge of men. He came the first time to be a sacrifice for sins, but he comes the second time as the sovereign and supreme Lord. His second coming will be victorious. But not only will his second coming be visible and victorious, thirdly, his second coming will be vengeful. Now that's the part we don't usually like to talk about or think about, but it's a part of the reality of it. Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, He will inflict vengeance upon those who do not know God and upon those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It was John who wrote in Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, every one who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Many people today live as they please with no thought of the consequences of life after death. Perhaps you've heard this little account before. I think maybe I've shared it before. I heard of a Christian who was talking with an atheist about uh, life after death. And the atheist asked the Christian, when you die... What if when you die, you discover there is no heaven after all? Christian thought a moment, and he said, Well, in all honesty, I, I've had a good life. I've learned some very valuable principles, Christian principles. I, I've really uh, had a good life. They thought for a moment, and then the Christian turned to the atheist and, and said, Friend, when you die, what if you discover there is a hell after all? 
The day is coming when Christ will vindicate his cause and his people. And of that day, the Bible declares in 1 Thessalonians 5, For you yourselves know well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people say there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as travail comes upon a woman with child, and there will be no escape. A number of years ago, I don't know how many, it's been quite a while probably, and some of you may be uh, familiar with this commercial, but there was a commercial out about a, it showed a mechanic, or at least a per person pretending to be a mechanic, and he had in one hand a Fram oil filter. And in, on the other side of the mechanic uh, was a car that's, whose hood was up, and the indication was that the person who owned the car had not properly maintained it, changing the oil filter and the oil, and as a result, the engine was bad. The engine had blown, was ruined. And the commercial ends this way. The mechanic says, you can pay me now, lifting up the oil filter, or you can pay me later, referencing the blown engine. Well, in Romans chapter 14, verse 11, it says, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, and every tongue will confess allegiance to God. The Bible says to us all, you can worship him now or you can worship him later because the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can do so now or you can, of your own choosing or you can be made to do so, but the day will come when you will. The choice is yours. That will be the vengeful aspect of our Lord's second coming. But we as Christians can rejoice. Jesus is coming again, our blessed hope. Well, what kind of religion do you have? I hope it is not one of symbols, but one of substance. I hope it is one that is based upon the book the blood, and the blessed hope. Someone has said, the religion you live is the only religion you possess regardless of how much religion you profess. 